Welcome to the Ward Zero podcast, covering the civic issues you most want to talk about. You are now entering Ward Zero. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Season 2, Episode 8 of the Word Zero podcast. You're hearing me, Darren Krause, hosting this week, as Esmahan is a little bit under the weather um, and will just chime in, and it kind of takes a little bit to, to take on the, the hosting duties, so I'm going to be the one who does that this week. Of course, joined by Esmahan Razavi and Jeremy Zhao. Before we get started, we'll do a land acknowledgement. In the spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge that we live, work, and play on the traditional territories of the Blackfoot Confederacy, the Siksika, Kainai, and Pikani, the Sutina, the Stony Nakoda Nations, the Métis Nation, Region 3, and all people who make their home in the Treaty 7 region of Southern Alberta. It's been a while since we have gotten together for the Ward Zero podcast. We are working on crazy schedules, throw in a little bit of vacation time. And I mean, we're, we are where we are. Uh, so thank you for being patient with us as we produce another episode. But we've got some great topics to go this week. Uh, we are going to talk about the Calgary Climate Strategy and where that's at. We're going to go a little bit outside of the Calgary area. And we're going to talk about the UCP leadership. And there's a strong Calgary contingent of candidates that are included in that. And we are gonna go and talk about safety on transit as well. We'll also have quick hits and hot takes. And that is actually where we're going to begin this week. Uh, I'm gonna turn it over to Esmahan for her hot take because you may or may not know that Esmahan produced a really wonderful CBC piece uh, this week that talked about uh, experience she had going to Toronto and how it might be reflective of the way we need to view Calgary moving forward. Esmahan, tell us what that piece was all about. Thanks, Darren. And um, uh, like you said, I was away on vacation for a little bit. I went to Toronto and I don't know, while I was there, I had sort of the same chats that I kind of always have when I'm there, which is like, why are you still in Calgary? Why are you still in Alberta? When are you moving back? you know, I, I've talked about this on the podcast before, like I actually did move away from Calgary for a little while, spent some time in Vancouver and really noticed, I guess, how Calgary is viewed outside of the Calgary slash Alberta bubble. But then when I was coming back, I guess I realized like I actually felt more comfortable in some ways in Toronto than I do when I'm here. And I think part of it is around, for me, what I realized is like, as much as we talk about diversity and inclusion and stuff in this city, I think that we treat it as like a little bit of like a, like something that we tack on and not something that is like central to our identity. And that because of that, we're telling a story about ourselves that like excludes so many people who live in the city and who see them want to see themselves as part of the city. That to me was like kind of like a sad realization. Um, and it, it was surprising to me actually, because you know, when you write something and you put it out there, you have no idea what people are going to think. Uh, it was surprising to me how many people agreed and, and really do think that we are telling a, um, a story about ourselves that is exclusionary. So I, I was actually kind of like heartened to see that because it makes me feel like, well, we all kind of recognize that we can be doing a better job of being a more inclusive city and, and telling that story. So 
yeah, I don't know if you wanted me to go into that kind of ramble. I, I do have COVID, so I have like COVID brain. So I apologize in advance for the rest of my comments today. But yeah. Wait, that is no excuse for any ill-advised comments. Uh, no, I, I I thought it was fabulous. And it got me thinking, and, and Jeremy, I'd love your thoughts on this, that and I mean, of course, this is this is white guy, white settler guy's perspective, of course, that I, I believe the diversity to some degree is there. But to the point of the story, we are not highlighting that. We are not telling that part of the story. We're still focused on that exclusionary aspect. So so I don't know if I'm way off base saying that the diversity doesn't exist and there aren't organizations working to make it happen and companies who are trying to to build diverse workforces i just think that when we tell the story of the city to the world that often gets overshadowed am i off base on that i thought esmahan's piece was really like it was a really good uh like a feel good story but i it, there were a lot of like uh, mixed emotions i think when i was going through her piece because there, I would say, would be a, a significant number of, of visible minorities because I, I work with them on a daily basis where, you know, they, instead of embracing that diversity at times, you know, they self-exclude themselves and they want to instead integrate into that, that, that traditional narrative of Alberta and Calgary. And you know, we have a new generation and a whole new group of, you know, immigrants and, and other people that are coming in to this, the city to live, work and play. Oh, I'm going to use that phrase. But it was mixed emotions because there are a lot of people who may go, you know, I put in the effort to try and integrate rather than and what they should have done was kind of express that diversity, show that diversity that Calgary is. But, you know, sometimes there's that inner conflict and I've seen it and I, and I kind of maybe at times grew up with it as well. So those were kind of the mixed emotions that I was feeling when I was reading that article. I think it's an interesting point, Jeremy, because I mean, it's, I, like, I kind of feel like part of that is like a defense mechanism, because if you live in a city where you feel like your identity isn't seen as intrinsic to it, then you kind of feel like you have to adopt another identity and maybe be the most like, whatever, right? So that you like, you're like that you know, kind of like model minority narrative, which is like really tragic. I think to Darren's point, I mean, my experience of the city, when I first moved here, I felt like it was like a super white city, which I mean, again, like coming to from Toronto, that's probably slightly, they're probably, you know, it's not as diverse, but it's still really diverse. And I don't think that when I moved here, I realized that it was like the third most diverse city in the country that because that's not a story that we tell about ourselves typically. And I think it's because, you know, and I, and I mentioned this in the piece, like when we think about what Calgary is, I don't think we, we tell that story that's like truly embracing those diverse parts of our identity. So yeah, to your point, Darren, I think there was a lot, a lot of it has to do with storytelling, but more than that, I think it's like, we have to stop treating diversity too, as like, is like a nice to have or like as something that you know we we create a committee about or we have like a diversity equity and inclusion officer at our company because that's like that's just making like it another kind of silo like it has to be central to everything that we do and how we approach approach the city and like when people think about Calgary 
like we we need to think about how to tell that story so that it's not just <laughs> it's not just one aspect of us it's not that corporate cowboy but it's like all of us and I, I was trying really trying hard not to cough through that but uh I failed that's okay it adds a certain context to the whole to the whole conversation that we had earlier you know what it was a great piece and I think I hope that it forced a lot of people to do some thinking about the way we view diversity in the city and uh and for those of you who haven't checked it out you can check it out at cbc.ca we are going to move into quick hits here really quickly I'm not going to like, I'm, I don't want to monopolize the conversation, but does anybody want to take on quick hits this week or this episode? Happy birthday, Livewire Calgary. How about that? Oh, yes. Okay. Yes, we are celebrating four years. Really, really super great. Uh, and you know what? The campaign that we're running about 30 reasons why people should support it's actually getting some traction people are actually signing up and going hey you know at least one of these reasons <laughs> aside from their content um is a reason why why i would support them for me i want to go back to the calgary flames truncated playoff run i really want to point out how awesome the parking lot celebration the red zone or the red lot was for the calgary flames and you know Aside from hockey revelry, I, I just want to point out how quick and how relatively easy something large scale that many people can come to, that many people want to come to, can be put together if the will is there. And in talking with some councillors previously, uh, I think, and actually the mayor, I think sometimes we get in our own way as a city in terms of putting roadblocks in the way of why something can't be done. Uh, and I think this is a good example of what can be done when minds are put to it. Speaking of that, there's a website today it launched. I don't want to date us, but it was today. Today is what, June 16th? Website set up for Bill 21 donations. You may recall the city declined to put cash aside for the legal fund for the Bill 21 fight. Of course, Bill 21 is the Quebec legislation that prevents religious symbols from being worn in the workplace. Uh, also, I think it's worth putting together a little bit of a flood update. And I think if this podcast goes out this weekend, which it should, it'll still be fresh. Uh, the berm in Hillhurst Sunnyside is going to remain but they are opening up a couple lanes of traffic. The city has their eye on a second weather system, and they said that they will have more information by Sunday on exactly what it might mean for early week rains. Uh, Francois Bouchard, director of water resources with the city of Calgary, said that the snow that fell during the last system out in the western part of Alberta helped this time around because we didn't get that 125, 150 millimeters of rain. So it really limited the flood, but some of that snowfall is still remaining there and temperatures are warming up. And if rainfall hits with that snow on the ground, it's going to exacerbate the situation. Not to mention the fact that after all this rain, the grounds are saturated. So 
keep an eye on local media, calgary.ca slash flood. Of course, we're going to have it at livewirecalgary.com. Uh, and we will keep you up to date on everything that is happening with the flood or potential Thanks flood. for doing that, Darren. I just wanted to say, because as someone who now lives in a flood zone, <laughs> I am like refreshing all the news and all the conferences by the CMA and stuff constantly. So thank you. You know, it's interesting that you say that, Asmahan, because somebody did tweet back at us today going, why would you, why would you use the word if? Doesn't that create a lot of undue anxiety amongst Calgarians? And yeah, there's no doubt that it probably does. For a lot of people, it takes them back to 2013, uh, especially those who lived in those areas. But I think the real key here, and I think the mayor has said it, I think uh, Calgary Emergency Management Agency Chief Sue Henry has said it, uh, there is no better way to prepare than have information. And if that if that we're using in the media gets people prepared or thinking about being prepared so that they can evacuate at a moment's notice or they've got all of their documents or their, their expensive furnishings or whatever out of the basement. I, you know what, that's, that's what we're here for. We're here to provide the information to get people in the mindset. So thank you for, thank you for thanking us because it's an important job. I think that we do to get that information out. It really is. And like I, I said, as someone who lives in a flood zone and you're thinking about like, like I was literally thinking like, Oh, I can unpack the bag I made. Um, the emergency bag. And now I'm like, no, I can't because there might be a second weather event and uh, I have to be careful. So yeah, thank you. All right, we're going to move into Calgary's climate strategy, the pathway to 2050, I believe it's called. It was brought forward at the end of last month, and there was some talk at that time that maybe there was more questions to be asked, that maybe some of the costs, there was an $87 billion price tag that was initially reported. And, and I have to admit, we initially reported it as $87 billion. Uh, we did also include that it could save money because we did actually read the document, but that was a real sticking point for a lot of Calgarians is this $87 billion price tag and some of the questions that lingered with it. The matter was put off until July 5th, at which point it's believed that Calgary City Council will make a decision on adopting the climate strategy. So I'm gonna turn it over to both of you at this point. The, the highlight number there is net zero by 2050 and all of the ways that the city of Calgary through their work is going to get us toward that target. I'm going to open it up to you. What do you think about it being put off one month? Uh, what do you think about the climate strategy itself? And what about the cost? Any thoughts? Yeah, I've got a lot of thoughts. <laughs> First of all, I mean, I thought that it was so interesting that, and I know that um, you guys sort of like Livewire talked about the cost of not acting. But for me, what was so interesting was that the $87 billion number kept getting repeated. Um, and there was no context in terms of like, oh, okay, like we're spending this $87 billion. But if we don't act on climate change, then we will actually be spending lots and lots and lots of money, including up to like $8 billion a year. 
And I think it's so striking that this discussion is happening just around the time of like uh, extreme rain. We have lit, we are living in a city that's been dealing with extreme weather in the summers, like over the last few years, whether it was like extreme heat last year, obviously lots of rain this year. So, I mean, like we know that climate change is happening and that we need to be more resilient as a city. And to me, what I would have liked the discussion to be focused on more was less about the costs and more about like, okay, well, like, is this really going to shore us up for the next, for the future? Like, you know, are we doing everything that we need to do to like protect our city against these extreme weather events? How is this plan reflective of that? Like, I, I think that that discussion was lost a little bit. You know, what's really interesting. Um, I've been kind of learning about, you know, the certain municipalities on the island, for example, in terms of their climate strategy. And at the end of the day, it's a strategy. Sure, we can throw out the $87 billion number, but what uh, was super interesting was like what Esmahan said, we were so focused on that $87 billion number, whereas, you know, the approach with other municipalities, perhaps in other provinces like BC is that it's, it's a goal, right? Uh, they're always uh, seeing it as a win if, you know, one household decides to, you know, do something that makes their homes a little bit more energy efficient or if they put a heat pump in or something like that. And they kind of use uh, what's been happening both in the public sector and both, I guess, privately with households or, or commercial buildings to see how well they are doing and progressing towards a, we'll call it 2050 or, or whatever year, net zero target. So I, I've seen it as more of a strategy, but we're so focused on the fact that we have to, you know, spend $87 billion cumulatively between the private and public sector to get us there. To me, it's more like, like the whole uh, document, it's a strategy, right? It, it is probably unlikely that we will hit that target, but at least it's an, a good indication of where the city is at and how they're progressing as a whole, as a municipality, but also um, the private citizens and, and businesses as well. I'm going to give a personal analogy. Sorry, Darren, I think I, I cut you off. But um, so like I live in uh, like I, I mentioned like a flood zone. And when I chose this place to live, I tried to get flood insurance. And I was told that because I live in like an area that's like close to the river, I would not be able to get flood insurance. And then in my head, I was like, okay, well, we kind of had like you know, flood in 2013, there's probably not going to be anything in the next little bit. And over the last few days, I've felt so sick <laughs> over the fact that I don't have flood insurance. And I would way rather have spent like whatever, like cumulative amount every month to, to like protect myself in the case of like extreme weather, than to like reach a point where then you're like spending so much money because you don't, you didn't do any of that, like pre-spending. I know like arguments by analogy are like not great, but what I guess what I'm trying to say is when we focus the discussion on this, like you know, $87 billion goal or whatever it may be, what we're not thinking about is what we, what we might actually have to spend if, you know, we don't under, undertake any of these measures. And we're not thinking about how we're actually giving ourselves like peace of mind and, you know, creating a more resilient city and like all these other things that are supposed to be part of our city planning goals or, or whatever they may be. And I'm just going to get slightly political because like I put this in our show notes, but like Dan McLean had this like tweet that was like, do you want to have a climate change tax and pay for that now or, so, or something like that? And it's okay. No, it's obviously not a climate change tax. And like, what are you going to call the, the other bill that we, we will get if we don't 
invest, which is like the bill that you get when you, you know, realize you don't have flood insurance or whatever. And suddenly you're having to furnish your whole apartment again from scratch. So arguments by analogy, not my favorite, but I had to bring it up. No, but the analogy makes a lot of sense. Uh, and actually it's something that I think a lot of people can relate to as Mahan is you decided that you didn't want to pay it right now, but now you're worried. Well, what happens if I lose all this stuff? I have to replace it. The same thing could happen in, in Calgary. If we don't take the steps to mitigate climate change, we could be that proverbial flood insurance owner or flood insurance person who didn't take out the policy. And now we have to pay for all of the damage that climate change has done to the city. But on the, on the cost aspect as well, and I think the mayor pointed this out and it was kind of interesting and she sort of chastised city administration. The big number, especially in the admin report was the 87 billion no context whatsoever. And I'm not even talking about the 80 billion or whatever that we could save by taking uh, these actions to mitigate climate change. But this was not $87 billion solely on the city of Calgary. I mean, people, we got to keep in mind that we've got a $4 billion budget. Are you telling me that we're going to double the city budget just to pay for climate change? No, we're not. It, like, and, and to think that that's the case, I'm sorry to say, is, is idiotic. But, and this is what was not articulated in the report, but that is the private investment. That is the companies who are changing over their fleets so that they're electric vehicles. It's the companies who are doing solar retrofits on their buildings or window retrofits on their buildings. It's it's organizations or, or, or developers planting trees, more trees to improve the canopy in the neighborhoods. And it also includes some of the things the city's going to have to do. That part got glossed over like you wouldn't believe. And it's unfortunate because it's the same thing. It's the same thing that was played out during the event center conversation. And that is, as soon as somebody puts out in the media, it's all Mayor Gondek's fault that the Calgary Flames deal fell apart. That is all the public gloms onto, which is awful because it was, it may have been a part of Mayor Gondek's office, but it was entirely within the Calgary Flames decision-making, you know, mechanism to decide to go ahead with the event center with a few million dollars more uh, in expenses. But that part totally got ignored. Same thing happened here. $87 billion going to be on your tax bill or whatever, you know, like the circle that Dan McLean has on that tweet and nothing about how we're going to get that $87 billion. And the fact that a lot of it is going to be returned to us over time. And I think that was a real failure of the city to not be very careful about how they have this conversation with Calgarians. Yeah, it's interesting. And, you know, I'm, I'm looking at the, the little list that I pulled up here. So this list was done before the Lytton fires. Oh, sorry, the, yeah, the, the fires there. But uh, the top, you know, six of the 10 most costliest insurance payouts are all located within Alberta, right? So either you pay for it through tax or you pay through it with, you know, unfortunately, your premiums and your ever increasing um, insurance payments every month. So there's there's no escape. And I, I think 
having a strategy in place, regardless of whatever that cost looks like, is still a good goal or at least indication of, of where the city's at when it comes to things like some of the things that you had listed there, Darren. And, you know, one of the most more common things that I'm seeing right now, you know, with uh, condo boards, for example, is, is, is the question of like, oh, is my parking spot going to have an EV capable charging spot? That's just an example. But, you know, these questions come up more and more now and and it's just a reflective of you know changing tastes i guess or 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 changing perspectives on on what they have when it comes to how they i guess safeguard against climate change or 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 preferences All right, let's move on to the UCP Leadership Contest. Really interesting. Just to get you up to speed, you may recall that after the UCP leadership vote back in, oh gosh, what was that? I think it was May, May sometime, Premier Jason Kenney announced that he was going to step down, step down as Premier, step down as leader of the party, and sort of pass the torch to someone else. Immediately, We have Brian Jean, Danielle Smith, both formerly of the Wild Rose Party. We have had others come forward. We have Leela Ahir. We have Travis Taves. We have Rebecca Schultz. We have Rajan Sahani. We've got Todd Lowen. And you're right. Now that I see the other picture up there on that, I don't know who the other one is. But we've got a real smorgasbord of the conservative party here. We've got the far right. We've got the right. We've got the just center right. We've got an urban versus rural split. And there still might be names out there that haven't entered the race yet, including perhaps even Jason Kenney himself. Esmahad, what what do you make of the situation with the UCP leadership contest? And is there anybody who you think is a fit for where you think the UCP should go? Well, I think what is very interesting to me is that if we think about what the UCP needs to do to win government, we know that like Edmonton is pretty much not their territory. It it might go fully NDP next time. We know that rural tends to lean more right. And so Calgary is like kind of the battleground. What was interesting to me is that I think that, and I can't remember where I saw this, so I apologize if it's if it's like not 100% accurate, but when we were kind of waiting for the Jason Kenney leadership results, there was a lot of stats that being said or being thrown around saying that like most of the memberships in the party are in rural parts of the province. And so the base seems to be in like rural Alberta. And so what I'm really interested in, in is this like urban rural attention that exists in the party because you know what we've seen over the last few years and people have given Jason Kenny even a hard time for for bringing this up but that the rural parts or of the of the party are where that kind of like anti-vax movement has tended to be maybe maybe worth more of that like and I hate saying this phrase like pro-freedom I don't even know what that means like you know wing of the I don't even know what is pro-freedom but you know what I, you know what I mean when I say that, like, that's where that wing of the party is. And so like, we're all pro freedom, aren't we? 
well, actually. <laughs> well, oh, you mean air quotes freedom. <laughs> air quotes freedom, you know, the like convoy folks I know, <laughs> uh, who are fighting for our freedoms. So like that, you know, that wing of the party has really taken hold. And so you need a leader or they need a leader who will try to do what Jason Kenney did, which is like hold ground there, but then also appeal to the moderate who live in Calgary, who voted for Mayor Gondak and for a, by and large, more progressive council. I don't know who is able to do that. It seems to me what I thought was quite interesting was when um, uh, Travis Taves came out with his video, you know, introducing himself and he, he, you know, showcases himself to be this like rancher, a big family, there's cattle in his, in his video and stuff. And I was just wondering like, okay, like what Calgarian or Edmontonian does that video resonate with at all? If, if his video is like reflective of like what he thinks the future of the province should be, like who is it resonating with here in Calgary? And I get that it's not supposed to necessarily resonate with someone in Calgary. And my whole point is that like there's this rural urban divide and I'm very interested to see who can bridge that. And, you know, someone like Michelle Rempel, I think, a few years ago might have been the answer because she was like a champion in the right, you know, loved across the spectrum. She really is someone who, um, you know, gave Trudeau a tough time in opposition. But then a few months ago, you know, she's someone who's come out against the right and kind of pushed back against this whole like World Economic Forum conspiracy theory. She's very clearly pro-choice. She broke ranks with like uh, the current leader of the CPC, Candace Bergen, by coming out and saying she's pro-choice. And so how does someone like her resonate in this more pro-freedom <laughs> wing of the party? Can we can we come up with another term for that? I don't like I can't even say yeah, that. Yeah, I'm not sure. Term. I'm not sure you'd like the term that I came up. It's probably <laughs> equally uh inappropriate. Just I'm trying to think way. of like one that is yeah <laughs> okay to say. So yeah, I I don't know. So after all that, Esmahan wraps up with, yeah, I, yeah, I, I, I just don't know. I, I think, yeah, I'll let someone else talk for a while, <laughs> while I cough. Yeah, Esmahan, you touched on that, that leadership launch video by uh, Travis Taves. And, and, and as you were talking about that, it's like, I'm going to think about that CBC article that you wrote about, like, wh- like, just imagine if he, because he probably has those credentials already, you don't, I mean, he's he's highlighting his, his roots, but imagine if he had released, you know, a leadership video that was kind of more akin to, you know, that Toronto ad, like, just think about it. Like it, that, that would send a message to say, I already have my rural credentials already. It, it's, it's good. It's legit. Right. As the kids say, it's totally legit already, but to highlight and to bring, you know, like you said, the, the, the voters in Edmonton, the voters in Calgary or in some of the smaller municipalities, I think that would have sent a bigger message that Alberta is truly in transition, not just from an energy perspective, but from a province that understands its diversity and can, and can embrace that diversity and, and find strength in it in that diversity. But instead, we use kind of the same old slow-mo, I'm a farmer, I'm going to walk very slow across the field and, 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 and talk about my credentials that way. But I, I, I think there's always opportunity. It's not a criticism. I'm just saying, I'm just thinking of what if, 
you know, like a what, like, you know, that what if series on for Marvel, you know, where, where they think of alternative realities or universes. But it, to me, it was very interesting when I saw that leadership video. On the leadership videos, first of all, I mean, I saw Rebecca Shulls as well. What is it? You're absolutely right, Esmahan. What is the, like, I'm, I'm doing it here on camera. This slow motion walking through the glass, the, the, the grasses. I'm just like, is there, is there a more tired Alberta trope? Don't the, the vast majority of voters live in urban areas in this province? Why, why do we not see anything about cities here? This is going to be the battleground. And I really think that it's a huge miss, especially for somebody like Rebecca Schultz, who is in Calgary. Is she just assuming that because she's from Calgary, she's going to get those votes and she needs to appeal to the, to the rural conservative voters? Maybe that's the case. There was one interesting thing I want to bring up, and I think it's kind of funny. And, and you know what? Dan McLean needs to just become a sponsor of this show because so there was a tweet that he posted where he was shoulder to shoulder with Michelle Rembel Garner and saying, oh, it was great to, to see her again. And she's got some big news about what's ahead. And then there was another tweet, though I must say I cannot confirm the veracity of the photo. But Dan McLean was announcing Rebecca Schultz at her leadership unveiling, I guess you could say. So, so where does where does Dan McLean fit in here? And is he really interested in city politics? Because he sure is playing a lot in other sandboxes. I, I want to touch on two more things here. First off, this whole idea of $150,000 entry and the UCP party officials saying, we basically want to demonstrate, or we want the candidates to demonstrate that they have a fundraising ability. Uh, what do you think? Is that, is that a little bit onerous or is it a reasonable barrier to entry in this contest? I think it's super onerous. I think I don't want to throw around uh, loaded terminology like rigged. But it definitely feels like there are the rules are geared towards certain favorites. Uh, that fundraising element is a huge component of that. I think. I, I got no comments. It's their party. They can they can do whatever they want. I guess I guess if you don't have money, you can run for the the Alberta party. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I I think I read that seventy five thousand was the entry for Jason Kenney's leadership bid when he he won. So it's double that now. And of course, we are going into an election. So fundraising is going to be key here. The other aspect, and, and this sort of dovetails with the fundraising aspect, but as of now, Michelle Rempel Garner is sitting on the sidelines. No official announcement yet on her leadership bid. Much like what can happen in, in municipal elections is that a lot of big money could sit on the sidelines while they're waiting to see if Michelle Rempel is or isn't going to jump into the race. Does that really pose a major problem for some of the other candidates, especially lesser known ones like Rajan Sahani? Uh, perhaps Leela here fits that, maybe even Rebecca Schultz. Does it really prevent them from fundraising because they don't have the same name brand with all that money on the sidelines? I was going to ask you too, what's with this trend where like a federal MP always wants to come in to save Alberta? Like, 
it's it was apprentice now it's kenny and now it's going to be uh, Rich- uh michelle rampogar like what what is up with that every single time it's like there's a there's like a crisis you know in alberta land and we gotta we gotta swoop in with 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 red carpets rolled out for us to to, to save the day i'm just i'm just always so curious about that yeah i mean like we fell for it last time <laughs> i don't know that we're gonna fall for it again I, I mean, I think, I don't know how much longer Michelle can wait. So I don't know if like, I don't know if it, if those fundraising goals are going to be impacted necessarily. I do think it's going to be hard work for everyone to raise that money. Uh, it sounds like the Kenny machine is behind Travis Taves. So like, he'll probably have the easiest route to, to raising the money. Although, I mean, to your point, Jeremy, about like, what's up with, you know, Ottawa politicians coming to save us in Alberta? What's up with people in JC's, Jason Kenney's cabinet pretending like they weren't in Jason Kenney's cabinet? Like, that's like also quite entertaining to me. But then again, I don't lean UCP, so I'm probably more skeptical. I think it'll be a really interesting race. And I am very curious to see how all of these candidates try to bridge this rural urban divide that we've seen. And I mean, you were both talking about those videos. I don't know. When I saw the Travis Taves video, I felt like depressed for the future of this province. We have to have a premier who recognizes that there are like many different identities in this province and respects them all and supports them all equally. Because if we don't have that, I really don't know that we're going to be the kind of place that people want to move to. Uh, and we'll like, we were already having a brain drain. I mean, I don't know if you guys saw this, but um, looks like Rocky View Hospital had to suspend surgeries in the evenings because they don't have enough doctors. And anecdotally, my, my, my dad is a doctor and like so many of his colleagues have left the province and are never going to come back. Uh, so these are like real problems we're dealing with because of the way that we've treated certain demographics here and because of the way that we market ourselves and the, whoever the next UCP leader is has to like actually address these problems. And so let's see. Uh- I'm good. Can I respond to Esmana? I think, you know, when I watched the video though, I didn't feel like there, I was just like, yeah, this is Alberta, right? It's kind of that, it's you know, the early, <laughs> <laughs> but it, that, that's just what it was like. The first impression was like, okay, this is normal. Right. Like, I know, I know we had this conversation earlier, but it was like, when I watch, I go, yeah, this is normal. This is what Alberta is. And I mean, it's not, it's like, like a pro or, 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 or negative. I just like, yeah, that's Alberta. That's what I've always known. Right. That's how I grew. I was born and raised here. And that's, that's just really all I've never known. There was a family side, but there was like a, this is what Alberta is. This is what I should aspire to. I don't know. Carry. How many Albertans have actually ridden a horse? <laughs> I haven't. I would like some public polling on this. <laughs> like like minus the uh, like what we've all done which is go to Banff and get on a horse like how many people have ridden a horse I don't know Darren it's a great question I mean (laughs) I I grew up in in southern Alberta and I've been on many a horse in my day but I'm not sure that really I still talk to a lot of people who've never ridden horses before but I love horses, just to be clear. And I think horse riding is a great thing to do. Great. If, just... if the horse lobby gets a hold of this, this thing, <laughs> they're going to tear us to shreds. I love horses. I love horses.
All right, just in the interest of time, we're going to move on to the third and final segment. By the way, we can go back. And we, I'm sure we'll talk about the UCP leadership in future shows uh, because there, there is a lot more to talk about there. But we want to move over to, to transit safety only because this is an ongoing thing. People have been talking about this a lot, but I think what kind of maybe brings it into the spotlight once again was an article by the CBC. I'm not sure if either of you saw it. Uh, it was by Lucy, uh, oh gosh, Morrison, formerly Edmondson, who, who, is a, who was a, a, a former Metro reporter under me. She had put it out and, and she did what I would say is reasonable boots on the ground reporting. But there's been a lot of controversy about her pictures and the portrayal of the situation with people saying this just further stigmatizes the, the situation. I think what she was trying to get is for somebody, whether it's a, a public official or a, a counselor or, or somebody to really understand, or maybe the general public to start putting pressure on people to really understand that this is a problem. And I don't want to say that she's the only one who has been kind of, you know, raising that, that sort of concern. There are a lot of writers, and I can think of one in particular on Twitter, who I, I think is, is a really wonderful person. And she knows exactly what's going on because she rides transit every day. She has been raising these issues for a long time. She said, this is exactly what it's like. So I want to start there before we get into further talk about the debate. Does it help or does it hurt the conversation when articles like that CBC article come out when we're talking about transit safety? I think it's a tough issue to cover. I followed it a little bit. I, I will say I've been out with COVID, so I'm not usually, I'm not as on top of the news as I normally am. But I think that there's some real concerns raised around how you know, those kinds of pictures can like depict the people in them and whether they're maybe like, I don't know, respectful of their privacy slash um, as empathetic as they can be. I did see, you know, a not-for-profit leader in Calgary share something yesterday around like how to take pictures in this type of situation and what's respectful and what's not. Um, so I think it's really important when we are telling these stories and I can definitely understand the intentions. I think it's super important to be talking about this issue, to do it in a way that is like respectful of, of everyone involved and, and go, and go from there. I mean, the conversation kind of became a little bit more about the article than about the issue itself, which is like, I think not what we want to happen necessarily. I, I wasn't here during COVID in Calgary, but I'm, I'm, I'm sure the, the problems have been exacerbated. And but but at the same at the same time, like I've taken transit uh, most of my life in Calgary. And I mean, I've seen the the issues and the challenges as well. So this is not something that is new in my experience. I've I, I, uh, whether it was work, whether it was school, whether it was just commuting um, with my friends, like like I've taken transit my entire life and and these are problems that, like you said, Darren, with other transit users have been ongoing problems for a long time. And maybe it's been more of a focus, I guess, during COVID and, and its effects after the fact. And, and now being on the island, you know, it sounds 
sounds terrible to say, but it's, you know, I, that the, the, the issues around, you know, uh, mental health issues, drugs, all that stuff is certainly, you know, in my life at the forefront every single day in downtown Victoria, that, that if you think Calgary is not great, I would say the Island is very, very apparent. It's very sad. You know, and we we don't have a solution here in Victoria of what what to deal with. And I know there have been so many uh, alternative solutions that have been proposed, but I'm also seeing articles of you know how very progressive mayors, for example, in the U.S. now are going. We tried a certain approach, and it's not working. And maybe we do have to go the way of kind of what Dan McLean is saying, for example, Councilor Dan McLean saying you know, maybe there has to be less of a tolerance now because the, the, the problem is getting a little bit out of hand and it's a complete 180 from kind of what more progressive mayors or, or leaders have, have been trying to advocate for, for uh, in the recent past. I think it's such an interesting political issue as well. I mean, just going, of, of course, there is a, a human issue there too. But I, when I was living in Vancouver, I was living downtown and there was this riding, Yaletown, um, that was my neighboring, neighboring riding. And the issue of like safety was huge there. And people were critiquing the NDP government there for being like too blasé about safety. Uh, and then there was an incident with a chainsaw, like someone who like literally took a chainsaw down the street, which is like the most extreme version of non-safe that you can think of. And really kind of like blew out of the water any kind of like, oh, we should, you know, we're not talking, we shouldn't, we don't need to talk about the safety component of this discussion. And then I saw recently, uh, this was a few days ago, like that the Democrats in the U.S. are having a little bit of a challenge around the issue of like policing, because on the one hand, there is all of this discussion around what we've talked about on this podcast many times, like reform and uh, defunding and all this kind of stuff. But then what people are wanting to hear, because there's like increased rates of crime that's associated with, you know, increased rates of addiction, people want to hear things that make them feel safe. And so that messaging is not necessarily resonant. And so I think from like a political, like political perspective, it, it creates a really tough dilemma for folks who are on the more progressive side, because the conservatives can switch to like law and order. And maybe, you know, that makes people feel safer that message isn't as clear on the progressive side. So uh, yeah, great endings to my conversations today. Hey, like just yeah. really insightful. Uh, I mean, <laughs> profound, profound is the only way, is the only way to describe it, Esmahan. Dan McLean, as, as Jeremy had sort of alluded to, he came out in a Rick Bell piece this morning calling for more boots on the ground. Now, I didn't, I, I, I didn't parse the words to see if he was talking about more boots on the ground in terms of not just police, but, you know, social agency workers and that sort of thing. But I'm, I'm inclined to believe that it's a little bit more on the, the police side for boots on the ground. And Esmahan, it does bring up that question, uh, you know, kind of tied to what Jeremy was saying as well. At what point do we just put police officers at every transit station and have them rotate and shifts. And we have to keep pushing people out of these areas, making the train stations safer for riders just to rebuild that confidence. I think we're going to find a, a maybe a, a middle ground approach. And I, it, it was after some conversations that I had with 
Councillor Sonia Sharp and Councillor uh, Courtney Penner. And I think they both in, in different ways sort of talked about dealing with the root cause issues, but also how police are integrated in that response. And in talking with Councillor Sonia Sharp, she had said that what she's finding is that a lot of these groups, whether it's the social agencies, whether it's bylaw, whether it's peace officers and Calgary Transit or Calgary Police and the Calgary Police uh, Administration and, and the higher-ups, everybody's operating in silos. The bylaw officers uh, you know, are, are under one part of the city of Calgary. Peace officers are under another and they're working for Calgary Transit. We've also got the Calgary Police, but then we've also got the work of social agencies like the Alpha House, the Drop-In Centre, and they're also working in silos. And so what Councillor Sharp had said was, we need to bring all of these people together and it's got to be a coordinated approach so that everybody knows what everybody's role is, what the goal is. And so you can address the public safety aspect. You can address the root cause aspect. You can get support from the different organizations when you need it. When you realize that a call on a transit station while it may have come in as a safety issue, as more a social issue, you know the number that an officer can speed dial to get the dope team down there to help. I don't know that that's happening right now. And I'm left with the impression from Councillor Sharp that, that that isn't happening right now, but there's work they're undertaking to try and get it to that point. So I say all that to maybe come to the conclusion that it's not an either or like a lot of people want it to be. It's not, we're either going to put a bunch of police or we're going to let the social agencies and deal with the root cause aspect. I think there's a real combination here. And I believe that while one may play out a little bit more prominently at times than others, I believe it's that coordinated approach that's actually going to get us to the place where ultimately the city needs to go. This is a little bit off tangent, but in BC, you know, starting next year, they're going to do that trial, the three-year trial for decriminalizing kind of small amounts of uh, uh, drugs that you can have in possession. And I know, I know there was a little bit of backlash from, uh, from at least the Albertan government and how they may or may not have been consulted on that. But I think the, the BC government's going to try something. And I think Alberta, you know, city of Calgary, city of Edmonton is going to look and see know how that plays out over the next three years and and this is kind of the stuff where you know back to my uh, previous comment about trying things maybe it will fail maybe it won't fail right some people have pointed to Portugal as as being kind of what Darren you talked about that all-inclusive package in order to to help alleviate uh, some of the issues that we see in terms of transit safety because of drugs and, and, and drug abuse but um, for me, it's this big picture where we have to try things and they may fail, they may succeed, but if we don't try and we kind of go with the approach that we've always taken, you know, that's, that is the definition of insanity. You just do the same thing over and over again. And, and obviously you're going to get the same result, but you keep going for it. So I think, you know, this is a very in, interprovincial topic here, but I think it's going to influence 
how civic leaders and provincial leaders are going to see uh, how things work out in BC in terms of uh, policy, in terms of enforcement, right? How police bylaw officers actually enforce some of the rules. And I'm, I'm sure it's, it's similar, you know, it's kind of a, uh, uh, a subjective, I guess, at times. So, but here in BC, they've defined it as opposed to letting the officers kind of choose whether they're going to enforce a certain um, uh, course of action. I mean, I think to your, to both your points, first of all, it's not, there's no easy answer to something like this. I don't think in presenting one is really a disservice to what we're dealing with as a society. The boots on the ground makes me uncomfortable because I think that like, is that really going to create a perception of safety? Maybe to a certain group of people, but to others, I don't think that they're going to feel safe, you know, just seeing more police. And I just want to touch on the uh, study that came out of Toronto the other day that showed the disproportionate amount of force that's used by police against Black people for no reason other than racism, right? So we, we just have to be like super thoughtful about this kinds of stuff. I, I think it's sad to me to hear that that coordinated approach isn't happening, but this is a problem that's like kind of happening all over the world right now. And we just need to figure out a way forward because, you know, if I tie this back to our first segment about climate change, transit is an important part of how we create a climate adaptive city. And we need to make sure that people feel safe and comfortable so that they take it. Right now, that's not the case, unfortunately. It sounds like we caught up with almost everything, and I assure all of our loyal listeners out there that we hopefully are back on track, although we've got summer and maybe some summer vacation that we're going to have to deal with here over the next little while. Uh, But I want to thank everyone for joining us. Of course, you can always play along with us at home because we talk a lot uh, about municipal issues or we're we're writing articles for the CBC, Esmahan, about municipal issues. But you can follow me. I am Darren Krause. You can follow me on Twitter at livewire underscore dk you can follow jeremy at jz sorry i was about to say jay-z you can say jz from calgary and you can follow esmahan at esmahan yyc thank you so much for joining us and we will talk to you next time